You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I'm in the process right now of making a decision that I'm going to be both happy and sad with because I know that it's going to cause me work. It's going to be a pain in my butt, but I'm looking at changing banks. Yeah. Well, that's a tough, that is a pain. Oh, it's a, because they, they get their claws in you and everything is tied to the, and all my vendors and all my bills and everything. All your auto pays. All my auto pays. I've got like nine different accounts at this bank and they just, they just tick me off because they're just dumb. You know what I have picked up on what you said? What's that? Is that you said you're looking at it. I am. I'm in the process of deciding because the pain of changing is holding me there, but I, I know I should just change anyway, but it's just. So you're in the valley of indecision. I am in the valley of indecision and I'm trying to decide, but look, I'll, I'll tell you what caused me to do this. I had you're, a. Hold on. You're trying to decide. I am. I'm right. Th- this just came up yesterday. You're deciding. I am deciding. You can try to decide. You can either decide or not. Uh, you can either stay at the bank or you can move. You're so annoying. There's only two options there. Uh, all right. All right. Okay. So you're deciding. What uh, would I'm you getting, need all right. To know I'm going to move. Decide. I decided just now. I'm going to move. All right. There you go. I'm going like to go. I'm leaving the bank. I don't say the name of the bank, but it, it kind of rhymes with base. <laughs> but it, it but it looks at, <laughs> I had this small little checking account. It's like $2,000 account. And they start dinging me 15 bucks a month, which is not a lot, but it's like 9% of the account over, over time. Yeah. And they weren't supposed to. And so yeah. they they just kind of sneaked in one night and started taking the money, you know, and I said stealing the money, but they, they, they started charging me on this account. So I called the lady and she's like, oh, I can refund the money for the past nine months. And we weren't supposed to take that out, you know, and thank you for noticing, sir. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I said, well, what I'm really interested in you doing is fixing it. So yeah. it doesn't happen. Right. I understand you can, you can replace the money. He goes, oh, I don't have the authority to fix it, but let me have, have you call Sarah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to call, I don't want to talk to Sarah, just fix it. She calls back five minutes later. She goes, hey, I talked to Sarah, who found a solution. Uh, just keep in this massive amount of money. She's like, just keep like $100,000 in all these accounts and we won't charge you. I'm like, that's your solution? That I have to keep this $100,000 in the account? I said, do better. So she gets off the phone. Sarah now calls. Sarah goes, okay, well, what we can do is we'll link it to this other account and it has a minimum of 35000 Like, why didn't this first lady tell me that? Yeah, that so would have solved your problem. Now I'm thinking they're trying to upsell me on stupid, you know, their like platinum secret level service or whatever, mm. they, you know, that they always try and do to you. Anyway, it, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to make a change. Uh, there you go. I'm glad they, I was they got a bad. The, si- they got a bad system. I'm glad I was able to help you decide. That. Oh, you did because you just ride my butt about it. Well, you could sit around and complain and try to decide, or you could pick yes or no. You want to tolerate it or not? All right, I and did. And you decided. I did. And so now the next step is what? Action. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, speaking of taking action and finances, our guest today knows about both of those. Nick Sonnenberg is an entrepreneur, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Uh, he's a columnist and a guest lecturer at Columbia University. Before founding his current company, Leverage, he spent eight years working as a high-frequency trader on Wall Street where he developed a love for and an obsession with efficiency. He 
CPR business efficiency framework is the culmination of Nick's unique perspective on the value of time, efficiency, and automation that he's developed over nearly a decade of working with teams of all sizes across all industries. It consistently results in greater output, less stress, happier employees, and the potential to gain an extra full day per week in productivity per person simply by using the right tools in the right way and at the right time. So he does a deep dive into all this in the book, and we talk about the book, Come Up for Air, How Teams Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. Not only did we talk about the book with Nick, we talked about how to create more time in your business, how to determine the best ways to contact your team with questions, how to create efficiency in your email inbox, how to get that thing to zero, and how to find small ways to run a more efficient business. Uh, Nick has a lot of knowledge. He is extraordinarily efficient. Our time talking with him was efficient. It's even a little bit shorter than normal. Stick around, listen a little bit, laugh a little bit, learn a lot a bit. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Well, I, I was re- I was reading your bio, Nick. I was so glad to talk to you. I, I saw that you were a high-frequency trader, and the only thing I knew about high-frequency traders, what I had read in Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, I told Sanger to read it. The only reason he read that book is he thought it was about people that exposed themselves in Central Park. So what do you think about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thanks for outing me. I mean, yeah, yeah. some go to jail in both cases. Criminal <laughs> either way, I guess. How long were you, how long were you doing the uh, high-frequency trading? Uh, eight years. I remember reading in that book about the amount of money they spent putting in high fiber lines just to catch the millisecond ahead of somebody else—is it? Mm-hmm. Was, was that your experience that that just the speed of that was so important? Yeah, and like you're almost forced to do it because if all the competitors are doing it, you have no shot. I left in 2014, and yeah, we were investing millions of dollars in new technologies to shave a millisecond. You know, back then. We were having conversations with microwave technology companies and we were, you know, asking them how, show us where the um, towers were going to be so we could really understand if it was a straight shot from Chicago to New York and, you know, taking into account curvature of earth. And yeah, it gets pretty crazy. Every microsecond, every nanosecond counts. So some of the algorithms you want to code directly on the microchip. Are you getting the information to make the bet on the where the speed of it and it sounds like if everybody sort of knows what's going on it's all about the speed is everybody feeding from the same database well everyone everyone has access to you know if you pay for it you you'll have access yeah um the best people start thinking about alternative data sources that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think about so high frequency trading is different than other types of trading it's purely quantitative the type of trading I was doing was index arbitrage. So um, I was market making futures, index futures like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ. And then when you get filled on an index future, you trade a basket of underlying stocks in some optimized way. Right. Now, you know, there's a whole bunch of different types of trading. You know, maybe you're doing a bit longer term trading and an alternative data source might be that you're trying to get images, satellite images of ships going in and out of ports or cars going in and out of Walmart parking lots. And right. that might be a leading indicator for the stock price, for example. Right. So 
checking you know, checking the you, wait the wait time at certain restaurants to see if you want to invest in that well, franchise or if, something like that. If if the parking lot normally is full and for the last three months it's empty at a certain you know company, that might indicate that in the future the pr- stock price is going to go down because you know that revenue is probably going down because revenue is going to be a function of people yeah. going into the store and if there's no no one parking so you know you'd have to be kind of clever to think about those types of things and then figure out how to get how to get the data in those situations and this but is a, a competitive it, edge that you have against other traders that may only the only information they've got is the publicly available quarterly report right yeah i mean i think that i mean i i'm biased right i have a master's in financial engineering and i did this professionally for eight years and I worked with some of the smartest people in the world and we had billions of dollars of capital and tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure. And I, even that with that, it wasn't easy. So, you know, people just looking at Yahoo finance or a quarterly report. I, I don't, uh, I'm not a big believer in that. You know, it's, it's so funny. I, I had some clients years ago that were, that were moving and they, they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to start trading our own stocks. I said, well, good luck, good luck with that because you're going to be on the other side of the trade with guys like Nick. I haven't looked to the stock market in nine years since I left, basically. Like, <laughs> I don't have, I, I don't want to compete against people on my old, my old team or people like that. Like what I'd rather, I, if I'm going to play a game, I want to play a game that I have an edge at. Oh, for sure. What do you think is missing that if the average person knew and understood about that industry that you spent so much time in would change their belief and make them understand, hey, there's no business competing? Because for you, it's easy. You go, hey, I'm not going to compete with my old team. You know it. You saw it from <laughs> you the You know inside. the game. You ain't playing. Yeah, but so what What? What would you tell someone if they were talking to you about of having a conversation like the one Sean had? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. I would say that there are reasons to play in the stock market or real estate market or these things, right? And one is to diversify and kind of hedge yourself so you don't have all your eggs in one basket. That's a valid reason. Um, but to sit there thinking that, you know, you've been looking at some bar graphs on Yahoo Finance for six months and now all of a sudden you're the next Warren Buffett is a little bit of, of a stretch. You know, there's also biases with these things. You never hear anyone bragging about how much they lost in the stock market or doing any crypto, anything like people tend to, if you hear about something, it's going to be positive because it's a natural human behavior to, to brag and not shame themselves. So, you know, you're hearing more about positive things and people are hiding more of the negative things. Um, you know, in grad school, I heard this example that was quite interesting, which was, you know, say you have 1,024 clients, you could send 512 that you think Apple's going up and send 512 that Apple's going down. And you're going to be right on 512. Okay, mm-hmm. So now you take that 512 and you send 256 that you think IBM's going up and you send 256 IBM's going down, right? And you, you, you get it. You get, you get down to one person that's seeing you be right 10 out of 10 times they're going to be like, holy crap, I'll I got to trust this guy, Nick. Yeah. You know, so, um, and like, if you look at a newspaper or a graph and you start thinking, oh, I can really understand the trends uh, of this stuff, you know, go, go and cover, <laughs> go and cover it with your hand and then say, okay, well, what, what's the, what do you think the next thing is up or down? You know, yeah. it's, it's 50, 50, um, unless you really have some really 
you, unless you have inside information, which is illegal, obviously, or you have a really robust infrastructure, you really are thinking about things that no one else is really thinking about, you know, then, then it's worthwhile to really start thinking, Hey, I can do this professionally. Otherwise I think people should just be looking at it as a way to diversify. Sure. What's interesting about the splitting the group up and, and half the people get A, half the people get B, and then keep repeating the process to get a really loyal small group of people that'll do whatever you say. I'm noticing that on sports gambling. There's a lot of guys on social media that are talking big about sports. And on the surface, it looks like they're just providing fun content on who they think is going to win the game this weekend. You dig in a little bit deeper and they've got uh, paywalls and content behind those paywalls for my my rock solid picks. These are my lock picks. This is who I think you should bet on. They don't come out and advertise that they're selling this betting advice. But if you follow them, you'll start to get the betting advice. And then I've started to to notice that there are guys on the page uh, in the comments, and they're basically, you know, shouting into the abyss, "Hey, so and so's a fraud." He told us in the private group to bet on Michigan, and now he's over here saying, see, I told you Michigan wasn't going to win. So they're, they're oh, doing so exactly he's what he's both said. sides. Yeah. There are lots of people right now in sports gambling doing that, people. Yes. The, the, all these things are really hard. They only, you know, like, like at a casino, the one that wins is the casino. You know, after you pay, if you have a 50-50 sh- chance of winning and then you have transaction fees and broker fees and other things, um, you start going down to forty nine and a half percent or whatever the percentage is you're paying in fees and the law of large numbers, right? You play a game that you have a forty nine and a half percent chance of winning, you're gonna lose money. You might get lucky here and there and you might hear about it. Yeah, if you play long enough, you're guaranteed to lose. Right. It, yeah, I've, you I've don't get lucky if you let Yeah, if you ask gamblers that question, you know, if you're if you're at the casino and you're you're playing you know, blackjack, stay there longer enough, eventually you will what? And a lot of the people yeah. at gambling problems said win. <laughs> you know, the real answer is you're going to lose everything, you know, eventually. Tell me a little bit about the business that you, you'd had. Cause I was reading in your, your book about how that kind of shook you a little bit and started you thinking about efficiency and systems when, uh, when your partner left. Yeah. Well, look, as a high frequency trader, it, it trains you to, to look at things through a certain lens. For one, it makes you appreciate the value of time because every microsecond literally can mean millions. It makes you celebrate small wins and really be looking at things through a microscope, which is turns out to be a pretty useful, powerful skill when it comes to business and looking at processes and being able to dissect a process and into, you know, the sum of various steps and be, you know, be looking at how do I optimize one of a hundred steps. And an appreciation for automation because everything was automated. So I kind of, and risk. As a high frequency trader, you're thinking about risk in ways that a normal person isn't thinking about risk at any point in time. So when I approach business problems, I'm thinking about, I, I try to run my business like a hedge fund manager. And I think every CEO is a hedge fund manager to a certain respect. Every CEO has time, energy, attention, money, resources available to him or her. Uh, that you have to allocate in some optimal way to maximize profit of your business. It's the same thing as with running a tr- uh, a portfolio. You know, I've got mm-hmm. computer systems and money, and 
a team and how do we put all these resources together to make more money? So it's the same thing in business. Um, with my business partner, when I left high frequency trading, I was running an app that I developed in the productivity space. And on the side, I had this idea for a freelancer marketplace and I launched it. I was cocky, if I'm being honest. I thought high frequency trading was going to be the most complicated thing possible and running a startup would just be a walk in the park compared to what I had just <laughs> done. And in some res respects, it's true. What I was doing was way more complex, but running your own business comes with a whole bunch of other complexities and issues that I wasn't real. I was underestimating how hard. And so we're having dinner one night, my ex-business partner, who's one of my best friends, we have an idea for this freelancer marketplace. And I turned to him and I say, look, because a, a big one had just gone bankrupt. Zirtual just dis decided or declared that they were going to shut down. Then they got acquired last minute. That drove conversation around what would be a better version of that. And at the end of it, I really liked kind of where, where the conversation had gone. And I said, look, you're, he was he 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 was already a fairly known person in terms of like, I think he had done a TED TEDx talk at that time and people knew who he was. So, I said, look, why don't you get five five clients? I'll build a back end simple system. Let's do that tomorrow. And this was a Sunday, so I'm like, I'll set that up tomorrow. You get five clients tomorrow, and we'll launch this thing on Tuesday. And so we did, and we had fake names, and we were the ones doing the tasks at first just to get our hands dirty and understand what to do. Okay. And you fast forward a month and we're speaking at uh, Joe Polish's mastermind uh, annual event uh, called Genius Network. And Tony Robbins was the day two speaker and we were the day three speaker. And it was just an incredible opportunity. And over 90% of the room signed up for our services. Wow. Uh, after we gave the talk. So we went from literally zero to five figures in recurring revenue almost overnight. And then you fast forward a year, we're doing seven figures in revenue with 150 people on the team. And we never raised money, which sounds impressive. Under the hood, it was a complete cluster. We were losing about half a million dollars a year. We were growing at 20% a month, but we were losing 15% a month of clients. Oh so good marketing was masking a broken product. And we had about three quarters of a million dollars in debt. So we had some stuff going for us, but there was a lot of foundation. We just grew too fast and we didn't set up that operational foundation that, you know, is necessary to support a company of that size. And so one day we were having coffee together and I'm sitting there, we're at this co-working space. I'm on a couch. He comes over to me, taps me on the shoulder and he tells me he's, he's out and he's, he doesn't give me like two weeks or two days, he's out in two minutes, like I'm done. And so I'm, I'm like holding my coffee about to drop it. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is, yeah, we're this going is down the drain. not yeah. good. Right. Because no one knew who I was. Our org chart was the two of us. He was the front facing, he was in charge of front facing. I was in charge of back, the back uh, facing stuff. So I think only about four clients and four team members knew who I was. And so I had to make a decision. Do I just bankrupt the company and step away too? Or do I try to turn this thing around? And I decided ultimately to turn it or to, to stick it out because I, 
I could see where we were messing up. I could see where there was a bunch of inefficiencies. And I knew that we just needed to create a little bit more breathing room and time. Time is always the biggest limiting constraint with anything. With enough time, you could almost solve every problem imaginable, right? So I knew with just more time, I could solve this. So I started going on this journey of how do I create more time? It's it's tricky, right? When you're working a 16-hour day, seven days a week, right. trying to not bankrupt the company, time is the most scarce resource. But man, it was tough, if I'm being honest. We we lost 40% of revenue, clients, team members, all within a three-month period. I'm cashing out my 401k. I remember a car ride with my dad to the bank to take a second mortgage on his house to loan to me for payroll. It was tough. But what I can tell you is in those tough moments, it really got me, it forced me to start thinking, how can I save more time? Where where are the holes in this bucket? And I realized there were kind of three major areas to focus on to be efficient. First was we needed to communicate more efficiently. It was hours and hours a day of just messages. So how do we limit that, streamline that, leverage technologies better to free up a little bit of this, the pings and dings in communication. And then the next was, where's all the work? How do we prioritize our work? Who's working on what? I couldn't answer these questions. I had to go and ping people to answer those questions. So how can we get a streamlined, clean work management tool where I can know who's working on what, what are the priorities, what's the status without having to bother people. And then lastly, we were already pretty good at our resources where resources are all of our doc, our knowledge, our SOPs, our processes. If we weren't good with that, we would have gone bankrupt for sure. But I started realizing like these three areas we needed to focus on. So communication, planning, and resources. And so without even realizing it, my CPR framework was kind of starting to evolve. Um, and then randomly people started reaching out. The ship started renavigating itself quite quickly. And we went from being on the verge of bankruptcy to starting to become getting out of the out of the pain. And people started reaching out asking for me to consult them on their operations within just a few months of all of this. And so I got to work with some really interesting companies from Poopery, the Poop Spray to Ethereum and Tony Robbins and a whole bunch of really interesting companies. And I noticed that everyone had the same issues that we were having. Everyone needed to communicate better, plan better, and document resources better. When you look at the CPR framework and looking at communications, I would say that problem communications show up pretty easily. Problem in communications show up pretty easily. You know, you, you can sort of see where somebody's not communicating correctly. You, you don't have a meeting of the minds. Uh, I told you to do X, you did Y. Um, nobody kept me in the loop. How are you addressing such a varied issue? Because it seems like communications is a really broad category. So I don't get into the soft skills of it. I'm not telling people how to speak. Like, how to, you know, I, I've got friends like it's Blake Eastman or Dr. Patty right there. <laughs> so I don't tell people how to speak like Dr. Patty and Tublin or Blake Eastman or my, my other peers there. They're yeah. world class at that. They can teach you, you know, how to change your tone, how to speak with nonviolent communication. Yeah. I am just here to tell you where different elements of work should be. So, you know, if you ask me to edit this podcast, where should that go? 
Should, should you text me that? Should you email me that? Should it be in a Slack message? Should it be in a direct message or a channel? Should it be in a project in Asana or Monday or one of those tools? And what happens in companies is you don't have a framework for where things should go. And that's what I figured out. And that's what my book is about. And that's what my company does is we do training on best practices of how and when to use all these various tools. So I'm not telling people, hey, you said that yeah. in a slightly like passive aggressive tone. I'm just saying, hey, in those types of situations, that should be an email or in those types of situations, it should be a Slack message or it should be in a project management tool. Let me ask you a question then. You're the expert on this. In in my company, we there have been people who have started to send me messages via Microsoft Teams, right? And I'm, yep. I'm used to my emails. I look at my emails. I run my whole business on that. And then, but I'm not seeing them. And so I've, t- I've just had to go back around. Everybody else loves it. You know, they're, they're teasing yep. each other all the time. And I was like, guys, I'm not going to read this. I got too many other irons of the fire. I can, I think I get an answer for Nick. So you're saying everyone loves it and you don't love it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're the problem. I'm the problem. problem. (laughs) Well, that's what, that's, 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 that's what my whole business is around is prop. You don't love it because it's new and it's like brushing your teeth. It's like telling you to brush your teeth with your other hand. You were never, there's a lack of proper rollout and training of all these tools and so if you don't know why to use it, how to use it, when to use it, like putting it on steroids and using third-party integrations and all these things, then of course you're not going to like it. You're going to want to stick to what you're comfortable with. But all these tools can fundamentally transform your productivity if you leverage them properly. And that's what that's what we do as a business. You have to know when to use them and how to use them. At the end of the day, the most important thing in a business to be high performing is that you're, you know where to look. The going on this scavenger hunt, you know, did, did Sean text me or was that in an email or was that in a Microsoft Teams message or was that in SharePoint? And you go on a scavenger hunt because you don't know where to look for right. stuff. Right. That's the silent killer. So if you just all aligned as a, as a team for these types of things, this is where we're going to put it. For this type of thing, this is where we're going to put it. At least you know in any scenario what drawer to open. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that does. Look, nothing is faster. Nothing is faster than email or text, right? Which is why people like it. It's really fast to email Sean. Can you can you do this by Wednesday? Hey Sean, what do you think of this? Hey Nick, and email is the fastest. But the underlying principle of my book is if you want to be a high performing team, you need to change what you're optimizing for. Right now, teams are optimizing for speed of transfer of information, which is why email and text is popular. It's fast, right? And it makes sense. If you're working a 12-hour day and you're tired and you want to be go home, you're just trying to cut corners and get things off your plate. But if you really want to have a sustainable, long-term, long-term globally efficient team, if everyone takes pause and puts things in the right drawer where they belong, you avoid all those 30 minute or one hour time wastes when you're going on a scavenger hunt because you know things are more organized. So if you flip the strategy from being one where you're optimizing for transferring information to one where you're optimizing for retrieving information, which means everyone needs to take pause and spend an extra few seconds here and there to put things where they belong, what goes around comes around. It's going to save a lot of time for the whole team. That makes all the sense in the world because it sounds like a simple idea hearing you explain it. 
And then I am reflecting on my own company and go, we don't have a framework. Our framework is whatever my employees think the other person they're sending this information to will check first. <laughs> and, and then there's a battle of, oh, well, I don't check that. Oh, well, on Thursdays, I don't look at my text messages or whatever yeah, it is. Look, and we're always switching. Work is hard enough, stressful enough to also have to keep track that Patrick prefers text, but Molly likes email. But on Thursdays, Sean wants a phone call. That, that's just like too much. Like you yeah. can't run a company off of managing every per, every person has their own individual preferences. And that just adds a whole other layer of extra work. That shouldn't happen. Just you need a framework that people just buy into and agree. And whether you like it or not, you stick with that framework and it's going to save significant time across the entire team. This kind of bleeds into personal life a little bit, right? Um, There are some maybe accepted unspoken rules about how we ought to communicate with each other. And and there's some generational differences, right? You know, I'm not going to DM my grandma on Instagram to like schedule lunch this weekend. You know, you you probably wouldn't Um, see it. Yeah. But there's a, it reminded me of this guy that I know um, in, in an organization we're both a part of. And he braggingly shared with the room one day, don't ever call me. If you call me and I don't answer, don't leave me a voicemail. I'm not listening to that voicemail. And if you do call him and he doesn't answer, his voicemail says, I'm not going to listen to your voicemail. <laughs> okay. And he becomes someone that I just don't interact with because I'm like, wait, you're dictating to me. Like, I have to communicate with you on your terms and your terms only. Like, I, I don't know. There's some pretentious, you know, there. I don't like it. <laughs> it just rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, well, fine. I'll solve that. I'll never leave you a voice because <laughs> I'll never call you. But how has so it impacted it, your own? Like, do you adopt any best practices for personal life and how to communicate in, and put things in the right channels? Well, you know, I try to stick with text message for personal and not mixing that with with business. I have similar principles of things, like I believe in asynchronous communication. In the case that you were mentioning about the voicemail, I would just send an audio message to the person over text and then let them call you back or audio message you back. But yeah, look, time is time. And for me, whether I can save a second in my personal life or a second in my business life, it's all coming from the same bucket. And so... I'm looking for opportunities in any facet of life, whether it's personal or professional. What do you think was the biggest time saver uh, as far as a single decision that you made? I think learning how to use email. It's the most popular thing that we train teams with at Leverage. Um, Knowing how to use email is probably the quickest magic trick, magic pill, whatever you want to call it, that you can do. Because every single person in the world has email. Not everyone uses Teams or some of these other tools like Asana, but everyone uses email. You've been using it for decades. And if you think about it, all email is is an external to-do list that other people can add to. And just like any to-do list, you want to get to, you want to knock things off your list. It's the same with email. And we have a really robust framework called RAD reply, archive, defer. Those are the three things you can do with any email. But depending on volume of email, we we see three to five hours a week, literally, that you can save just learning how to use email properly. And what's pretty cool with email is it's a single user activity, meaning 
if the rest of your team isn't using email, right? Like they're not following that rad framework. They don't know about snoozing or rules or any of the fancy stuff. It doesn't negatively impact you. You get the full benefit by knowing how to get to inbox zero. When you're talking before about Microsoft Teams, you know, if if you're not using it properly, that negatively impacts the rest of your team because as they're trying to adopt best behavior and message people and channels and do stuff, now they've got to know, oh, when I'm talking to Sean, um, we've got to go to email because Sean doesn't go into yeah. Teams. Well, it, it, it might have been that it was the wrong type, as you mentioned, it might have been that it was the wrong type of communications for that platform, which I think was the issue that was Might have been. Me. It probably was, yeah. Uh, now you, you now you you said a phrase a minute ago. You were talking about inbox zero, and I, re- I remember one time I I did get my inbox. Does you ever gotten your? You've inbox actually zero? told me, called me to tell I me. I did. I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, it, but it, it was ultimately I, I felt like I was sweeping water off the beach because it just it just filled right back up. I mean, mm. just with seconds. Well, there's a little uh, metaphor sometimes I use, right? Which is, um. Imagine you've got a sink that's overflowing with water. You can learn how to mop faster and maybe you solve the problem temporarily. But tomorrow, if you don't fix that pipe, the floor is going to get wet again and you're going to have to spend another five minutes tomorrow mopping and another five minutes the day after. And so if you want to kind of have a long-term sustainable strategy, it's, it's worth the investment to sometimes fix that pipe. Back to talking about finance, you can invest money, you could buy a house, you could buy stocks, or you can spend money, you could buy a car, or you could buy clothes. And it's the same with your operations and with time. You can spend time watching TV or watching paint dry or whatever you want to do, or you can spend, or you can invest time and that's the fixing the pipe, right? You can invest time learning how to use email, right? And that rad system. You can invest time training your team on using Microsoft Teams properly and structuring it properly with strategic channels and naming conventions and third-party integrations. Like these are all investments that upfront take you a little bit of time, but after a few days, weeks, months, you'll be saving more than what you had invested. And then every month now you've got yeah. an extra 10 hours a month gifted to you that starts stacking up. So the example you're talking about before, you probably didn't fix the pipe. You probably just mopped the floor in that case. So that's exactly. Right? Yeah. So I, better, I, in the email, I've, I've learned a few little tips and tricks, but I, I've never done any formal training. I've got the rules of, you know, I don't have a junk email because it doesn't, once you send me some BS email, I got the rule set up and it's gone forever. Right. And it, um, I got the... I've started using keyboard shortcuts, which seem like they don't save me that much time, but I don't ever have to use the mouse when I'm in my email. Boom, 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 boom. Just replying to keyboard shortcuts keyboard. can actually, it's one of these invisible things that don't dismiss the keyboard shortcut. Um, that's one of those things, back when I was saying before, high frequency t- trading taught me how to look at things in a microscopic way and celebrate small wins. You might find a thousand micro wins like keyboard shortcuts. And when you start stacking it up, it starts to add up. But how big is your is your team? My team is smaller than Sean. Sean's got about 20 people. We've got a four right now. Four. So let's just call it 25 people for round math between the two of you, right? And yeah. let's use your example of the, of the shortcut. 
Say it saves you two seconds per email. Instead of moving the mouse to archive, you can hit the letter E. How many emails do you think you get a day? They uh, 150. All right, let's round it down to 120 for easy math, right? And for easy math, let's just say it's one second instead of two seconds to move the mouse, but it's probably closer to two, okay? So let's just say that saves you two minutes per day. And it's probably more because we're being conservative. At the end of the week, that's 10 minutes. At the end of the month, that's 40 minutes. At the end of the year, that's, uh, what's that? Eight hours, 25 people. So that's yeah. 200 man hours across the two of your teams for free that you just got gifted back. Like imagine what you can do with 200 man hours. Like what would you pay for a free 200 man hours right now that next week, like you get 200 man hours of stuff. My point is that's 200 man hours on one stupid thing. I guarantee you if we brainstormed for a couple hours here, we'd find a few dozen of these types of things, yeah. get you over a thousand man hours back a year on some dumb stuff. And then teaching inbox zero, teaching Microsoft teams, teaching all these things might get you past the 10,000 mark across a team of 25. Like imagine what you could do with 10,000 hours extra by the end of the year. Your business would look totally different, wouldn't it? Yeah. That's, that's so a great don't point. dismiss the small wins. Yeah. Hey, Nick, what would you say is, is your biggest decision-making tip for leaders and business owners? I guess it matters what type of decision we're making. But in general, I think about, you know, best result, worst result. I try to think about impact over short-term and long-term. When I quit high-frequency trading, that took a lot of decision-making. I had a great job. I was making a lot of money. I was, you know, well-respected. I had security. It's a hard thing to leave. So to make a decision to go and take the leap of faith and do something risky the things that I thought about was, well, what's my maximum downside? Well, worst case, I could probably get get another job or, you know, do something similar somewhere else. Um, and then also, what's the opportunity cost? Uh, high frequency trading was becoming a harder and harder industry to be in. Every PhD in math and computer science was entering the space. And so I was looking over a three to five year time horizon you know, where's this industry going and, you know, what's the, what's the impact over a longer time horizon? So I try, and then lastly, more on an emotional side, what will I regret more by not doing? And when I started thinking about it like that, I thought that I would really regret not giving it a try being an entrepreneur. Thanks for being here, Nick. The book is great. Where can people get a copy and connect with the work that you and your company are doing? Yeah. So thank you very much for, for saying that. So comeupforair.com is the website for the book. The book is a 320-page book. It lays out my framework for efficiency that we were talking about, CPNR. And I'm an efficiency nerd. So you can imagine if I weren't, this would be like a 1,400-page book. It's not one of these fluffy books that you could <laughs> summarize in 10 pages. HarperCollins did not want me going one page over 320. So we set up this URL, comeupforair.com where we put a lot of bonus materials. So you'll find as you read the book, we reference this 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 website often. And we, we say, okay, if you want the cheat sheet, the playbook, the blueprint, the PDF for this, this, or this, you can download it at Come Up For Air. So we put probably another 100 pages worth of content up on that site. Um, and then if you need additional help getting trained in any of these tools and the CPR framework, my company, getleverage.com, 
does all the training associated with the material of the book. Thanks again, man. Really appreciated having you on. Hey, Nick, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. My takeaway from talking with Nick is when we're looking at systems around communication, systems around filing, systems systems around uh, sort of placing things in order, is not optimizing that for efficiency of how we store that information, but optimizing for how we retrieve that information. But I thought that was a really smart thing that he said there. My biggest takeaway was his comment that he tries to look microscopic and he learned that from the high frequency trading career. So if we can save one second in a task and we repeat that task a hundred times over a week, it's a thousand and over a month, it's two thousand over and over and over. We multiply it out. One second is absolutely worth spending an hour to figure out how to save. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes not personalized advice.